illness doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I gotta. We'll be back in a second to talk about the future of telemedicine. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. I'm Kenneth Wajda. I started the Wise Photo Project in my photo studio in Colorado back in 2015 as a way to make portraits of the sweet old faces that lived locally, but very few people are photographing seniors. And I wanted to make them for their great-great-grandchildren so they would always know where they came from. I opened up the project to photographers around the world, and I welcome you to join me at thewisephotoproject.com. Thanks. In 1889, William Osler, a doctor, pioneered the idea of the modern medical school. He combined the idea of an internship with grand rounds, basically understanding that medicine was learned by doing medicine. What he created was a system where young doctors would follow experienced doctors around, visiting patients one after another and learning as they went. Because we all know, I hope, that it's better to see an experienced doctor than it is to see a doctor who has never seen somebody with your symptoms before. Because as much as medicine feels like a science where we know exactly what's going on, mostly it's a pattern-matching exercise. Mostly what's going on among talented doctors is that they're able to sniff out patterns with more accuracy and a little earlier than other people can. And when they find a pattern that makes sense to them, when it's a pattern that has a name, they then follow the steps to help people get better. All of this is important to understand because the world of medicine, like everything else in our world, has been turned upside down. In this case, by Zoom. By the idea that not only don't you have to go sit in a room with sick people for two or three hours, or in some parts of the world, six or seven hours before you see a doctor for five or 10 minutes. But you don't have to go see the doctor that's near you. You could go see the right doctor. That what telemedicine allows us to do is not only transport ourselves across time and space, but also magically bring others, both systems, AI, and humans, into the conversation when it's appropriate. But if you've had anything to do with telemedicine, now that the peak of the pandemic is hopefully behind us, what you will have discovered is that once again, the car mechanic mindset of some people in the medical industry, and it is an industry, is kicking in. And what could be a greenfield filled with opportunity and efficiency and efficacy is going back to being not very helpful at all. Maybe you sent in some pictures of what was wrong with you. And of course, an office assistant printed them out on a black and white printer in low resolution and handed them to the doctor who didn't have time to look at them before your call. You get the idea. So here's a whole bunch of things that ought to be considered right this moment to transform the way most illnesses are looked at by most doctors in most situations. The first one is this. AI is really good at doing things like recognizing photographs. It's also true that more and more test results are being digitized and put online. When we combine those two things, 
what ought to be happening as soon as you are sitting down in front of a doctor is that a computer system ought to be reading everything it can find about you and your background and making some informed guesses as to what might be wrong with you. Now, we can test whether those guesses should be revealed before or after the doctor forms an opinion. But the fact is that all of us are smarter than any of us, which means that having this database, forgive me, this corpus of information will allow doctors to become much more effective. Number two, you've all heard that recording when you're on hold while you're waiting for the next available operator. Well, why aren't we waiting for the next available doctor? As opposed to the doctor who happens to be right down the street from you. That if we could imagine a pool of a thousand well-trained telemedicine doctors, each rotating through as the system figures out which doctor ought to be talking to which patient because of their experience, because of their background, and because of their availability, suddenly we can open medicine to people all around the world and we can treat more people more elegantly and with more care because we've wiped out all of the downtime. Number three, on my screen, in addition to showing me the doctor, small aside, any doctor who's doing telemedicine should read my blog post about cameras. You ought to have a setup that makes you look at least a little presentable and well-lit. But again, back to what I was ranting about, what you can put on the screen while the doctor is talking is information that I, as a patient, need to know. For example, when the doctor is getting ready to write me a prescription, why aren't you showing me on the screen which other prescriptions are often written for a situation like mine? And perhaps, adjacent to it, you could show me, compared to other doctors, which drug companies are engaging with this doctor, paying this doctor a consulting fee, sending salespeople to talk to this doctor, whining and dining this doctor, because while I trust the doctor's judgment, I would trust it even more if I understood what the status quo was, what the standard was, and why this doctor is prescribing something that isn't the standard. And now another cool thing that could happen. Where's the big red button that someone can choose to press, maybe for extra money, maybe not, that says, in this moment, I'd like a second opinion. Maybe because this is a critical moment in my care. Maybe because I'm just not comfortable with what's being said. Well, again, it's really hard to fly a specialist into the room with you when you're sitting at the campus of whatever medical institution you're on. But if we could imagine the highest ranked, most effective doctors doing only second opinion work, they could easily do five or 10 second opinions in an hour, press a button, the next available one shows up, the doctor defends his or her point of view, the specialist hears it, sees all the data right in front of them, sees the AI information, and can chime in with a point of view. Right next to that, why not show me this doctor and this hospital's track record on situations like the one I'm in? Because if it turns out that 27% of the people who have I'm just making this up, high blood pressure and these set of symptoms at this age, only 27% respond to certain kinds of treatment. But with this doctor, it's twice that, 
Well, that's going to help me in some ways. If it's half that, I need to understand, am I in the right place having the right conversation? Another thing that we know about medicine is that much of the time, it is the doctor's manner that helps people get better as much as it is the pharmaceuticals or the interventions. And on top of that, what happens after we leave the doctor's presence, whether or not we take the meds, whether or not we've got the right attitude, makes a huge difference. So where is the handoff? With telemedicine, you could instantly be handed off to the next available coach, somebody, a layperson or a nurse practitioner, who can talk you through what you just learned. If we are willing to pay $250 or $350 for a prescription, seems to me it's worth paying $15 or $20 for somebody to show us how to use it. And if we can't afford that, why not team us up with a buddy, somebody who's in a similar situation to ours, somebody with a similar background, somebody with a similar diagnosis. Let's end this Zoom call with the doctor by being part of a group with two or three or four similarly positioned people who can support each other as they go through this because we know that somebody with a buddy feels less disconnected and is more likely to follow through. Let's just keep going because already Google and Apple and everybody else is spying on us all the time. So why not have our drugs do it? Why not have the doctor find out the minute we fill or don't fill our prescription? Why not have the prescription hooked up to something that's aware of how often we're taking it so that there's a feedback loop in place? All of the ideas I've just shared with you have been showing up around the edges of medicine for a long time. But here in this revolutionary moment when impossible things are happening, when you can be on a call with a world-class doctor half a world away with five minutes notice using telemedicine. In this moment, when we've got all the data flowing around anyway, instead of having it be sneaked up in the corner by people who are going to use it against us, who is leading the charge to have it be used for us and by us? Because in this moment, we have an agent of change. We can reimagine what's on that screen. We can think hard about long-term medical support as opposed to short-term and expensive medical intervention. And the last part of my rant is this. We don't have a healthcare system in the United States. We have a sickness system. That's how the doctors, that's how the people who work with the doctors get paid when we're sick. And I think what we need to do, and in this moment we maybe could do it, is figure out how to turn the priorities around and the incentives around and have a wellness system instead where interventions early and often transform people's health, not just their pocketbook. Thanks for listening to my rant. I hope you're well. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad 
for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, let me know what's on your mind. Visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. I'm recording this on Giving Tuesday, the end of November 2021. A couple relevant questions. Here we go. Hey, Seth. Greetings from Western Massachusetts. This is Dan. I work in the nonprofit fundraising sector, and I'm curious about the marketer's opinion on the phenomenon that is Giving Tuesday. One day, a few days after a holiday of gratitude, and a couple of days after intensive campaigns to get people to spend traditional retail and cyber retail, where thousands upon thousands of charities flood your inbox with appeals to give because it's a particular day out of 365 asking when everybody else is asking a me too sort of movement in a different kind of way. I wonder what you think about it and how you could improve upon the good parts of it in a way that would um, bring nonprofits closer in relationship to the donors that can make the biggest difference to them. Thanks very much for all you do. Take care. Thanks, Dan. I was in the room when Jerry Sharashevsky invented Cyber Monday, back when very few people had heard about online shopping. And I've written repeatedly about the stupidity and empty promise of Black Friday. But Giving Tuesday, that one's new. Today, at noon, I had received, by noon, 80 pitches for money. It's really hard to do retail fundraising for most charities. In fact, I don't think most charities should do retail fundraising. It has blown up because consultants and digital experts have gone to charities and said, we can use all of these tools, permission marketing, spam, SEO, to come up with ways to spend $5 to maybe make 6 And that's one of the reasons you get so much junk on Giving Tuesday. Now, there's a good element of Giving Tuesday, which is this. A lot of actual fundraising people, people who care about the cause they're working with, have resistance to making the ask. It feels like a hustle. It feels like you're asking somebody for something they don't want to give you. And Giving Tuesday creates a dynamic where that's expected. It sort of lets people off the emotional hook. They have to do it because it's Giving Tuesday. On the other hand, if we think about the dynamics of philanthropy, nobody gives money to charity, whether it's $10 or $100 or $1,000, 
unless it's worth more than that to them, unless they're going to get psychic benefits, social standing, a story to tell themselves that's worth more than what they just gave. So in fact, everything is on sale. If it doesn't seem like it's on sale, people don't donate. And one way to think about this as a fundraiser is to realize they're not doing you a favor, you're doing them a favor. That when a millionaire gives a bunch of money to buy the naming of a dorm on some campus, they're only doing it because it's worth more to them for the affiliation and social status than it would be to not give that money. But back to my point about retail fundraising. The most successful charities understand they're not for everybody, but they might be for someone. And by finding that smallest viable audience, by engaging with people who want to hear from you, who are on the journey, who applaud the mission, fundraising becomes a totally different activity. And Tuesday is the last day you want to do it. Because the goal is not to be one of many. The goal is to be the one we would miss if you weren't there. So yes, Giving Tuesday grew, particularly in the United States, because we like to name our days, because we get a tax refund, because it's toward the end of the year and around Thanksgiving. And Giving Tuesday has helped some charities raise money by normalizing the idea that people ought to be giving money to causes that matter to them in their community. But the smart charities are realizing that persistent, consistent, connected relationships with a few donors are far superior to trying to spam the masses. Hi, Seth. This is Pete from St. Paul, Minnesota. I love what you do. I'm a big fan. Regarding your advice to create something every day, my question is, what are your thoughts and what is your own practice regarding staying on a particular subject? I co-run a company that is all about communication, and I could either go really broad with that topic or I could stay really focused on my target market and the specific aspects of communication that we teach our target market. It's much easier for my brain to go broad and to look all over the place. And I can't help but notice that when you create your podcast and your blogs, it seems like you go anywhere you want to go. And you don't really try to connect the dots back to specific recommendations having to do with the core topic of marketing, which is what you are known for. So what are your thoughts, broad or specific? Thank you, Pete, and I appreciate your kind words. Here's the thing. There are boundaries for everybody who is showing up and spreading their ideas. My boundaries probably seem wider than somebody who, say, is a knee surgeon in North Carolina. If you want to be the knee surgeon in North Carolina, the one who is able to do your craft in a way you know you can do it, who has a waiting list, who is able to pick your favorite cases, well, then you need to be trusted. People not only need to be aware that you exist, being listed in a directory is insufficient, 
They need to trust you. They need to believe that you are the person in that field. So if you're busy posting about golf or scuba diving, you might get more attention, but you might not earn more trust. And so being specific in a field like that gives you an advantage because the purpose of the work, the educating you're doing, the leading you're doing, is to help people learn something and thus gain their trust. In my case, what I decided a long time ago is not to be known as a marketer. Most of my blog posts are not about marketing. Neither, in fact, are most of my books if you think of marketing the way most people do. But to instead be there to help people hear, see, learn something that they already knew deep down was true, but give them the words to share it with others, to stand for standing for something, to help people do work that matters for people who care. That's my brief. That's what I am focused on. And there are lots of things I don't write about. I mean, you could dig deep on my blog and find a recipe for dal or dosa, but in general, I stick to that. And so the decision to make is what's your brand, which means what is the expectation people have from you for you before you even start typing? Because that's what a brand is. It's a promise. It's a shortcut. It's a way of thinking to ourselves which category someone in their work belong in. That's hard. But once you pick it, sticking with it, that's simply discipline. Thanks for this. Hey, Seth. Brendan here from Montreal, Canada. In an interview you did with Inc. Magazine, you mentioned that climate change is a marketing problem and should have been called atmosphere cancer instead. And it really led me to think about how words and how marketing can really influence change, especially in the philanthropic side. So my question to you is on the flip side, what have you found or what problems have you found from a philanthropic perspective that you believe have been well marketed in our current culture? And what do you think made them so successful at appealing to a larger group of people so that we can have the right conversations before it's too late. Really, the insight I'm looking for from this question is, is getting your take on inspiring ways that other exceptional thought leaders have marketed problems well so that we can actually get them solved. Thanks so much for the work that you do, Seth, and all the best. Thank you, Brennan. Um, this is a great question, and I want to give an example that isn't a good cause. I want to give an example that upon further inspection turns out to be not true at all, which is in North America and certainly many parts of the world, the recycling of plastic. The recycling of plastic in just 30 years really took off in many places and is deeply ingrained in the culture. It's hard if you're walking with an empty water bottle to walk past one of those blue bins and not toss it in there. Well, it turns out that more than 90% of all the plastic that's put in those blue bins is shredded, burned, shipped overseas, dumped in the ocean, anything but recycled. More than 90%. It doesn't work. And yet, it's deeply ingrained. Why is that? Because the promise was, this is simple, it's easy, it's close. That in very high proximity to where you are emotionally and physically, you can score some points by dropping something in that blue box. It will eliminate some of your guilt. It will raise your status in front of some of the people around you. The cost of doing it is so low, and the cost of not doing it feels very high. And so people did it. It's a low-cost way to feel 
like you're part of something. And the very fact that it's low cost, low risk, makes it a lot more enticing. So it's easier to get people to do things like this because we're people like us when it's something that isn't particularly difficult. And then when we look at other stories for other nonprofits that don't spread nearly as well, for example, getting tested so that you can find out if you can donate your bone marrow, that hurts. It takes a lot of planning. And the whole time you're doing the test, you're conflicted. Because what if you're a match? What if you're not a match? There's a lot of uncertainty associated with it. And the uncertainty, combined with the fact that it's sort of anonymous and sort of invisible, makes it a much more difficult story to tell. Compare that to the hundreds of millions of dollars that the folks who valiantly fight Lou Gehrig's disease raised with the ice bucket challenge. This is a disease that thankfully afflicts very, very few people. But the ice bucket challenge, it was just the right amount of difficulty and just the right amount of status and just the right amount of affiliation with low risk because you didn't feel stupid if you found out a year ago or a year later that they hadn't cured it yet because you got what you got when you got it. So that's a little bit of a rant, but I hope you can see the point I'm trying to make. People are not calculating machines. We are all irrational, emotional actors looking for the next thing to do that gets us what we've been looking for. Thanks to everyone for listening. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.